This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, a conversation between two fiercely smart minds that truly live up to our tagline. We've got organizational psychologist Adam Grant and IT research scientist Andrew McAfee discussing how we can all learn to unlock a bit more of our own potential. And if you do enjoy this conversation, you can get even more Adam Grant in the new year. He'll be back for us for a rare live event in London, teaming up with FT columnist, author and numbers man Tim Harford. They'll be speaking live at Cadogan Hall in Chelsea on the 18th of January 2024. Tickets are available in the episode description, so do join us if you can. But now back to today, here's Hannah Kay, executive producer, in conversation with Adam Grant and Andrew McAfee, discussing how to unlock our hidden potential. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist at Wharton and a podcaster. His books include Originals, How Nonconformists Change the World, and Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And he's just published Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. Andrew McAfee is a principal research scientist at MIT, where he studies how technology changes the world. His books include Machine, Platform, Crowd, and The Second Machine Age with Eric Brynjolfsson and Enterprise 2.0. His new book is called The Geek Way, The Radical Mindset That Drives Extraordinary Results, and it explains how a bunch of geeks iterated and experimented until they came up with a better way to run an organization. Adam and Andy, thank you both for joining us today. And thanks for having us. Adam, my first question to you is, what are the keys to realizing your hidden potential? Oh, how many hours do we have? I, I wrote a whole book to answer that question, Hannah. Well, then you should have the elevator pitch version of it down pretty quickly, pretty pretty well by now. Andy, we're not in an elevator. We have we have plenty of time. Okay. We're going the, more the, than 20 The stage is here. yours, my friend. Go. <laughs> Look, I think that my, my favorite evidence on hidden potential uh, comes from West African entrepreneurs. So this is an experiment where thousands of entrepreneurs are randomly assigned to a control group or a business skills training group. And as you might expect, the people who are randomly assigned to learn finance and marketing and accounting and operations, uh, just for a week, two years later, have about 11% higher profits. So there's a real benefit of investing in those, those cognitive skills that are supposed to boost your career. There's another group, though, that shows 30% increases in profits on average. What they've done is a week of not cognitive skills training, but character skills training. They've practiced learning to be proactive in anticipating opportunities instead of just reacting to them. They've practiced discipline and determination, coaching other entrepreneurs on how to overcome obstacles. And it's those skills of character, as intangible as they seem, that ultimately allow people to improve more and succeed um, faster than they would have otherwise. So 
I think the big part of, I guess I would say a big part of unlocking hidden potential is improving at improving. And if you want to get better at getting better, investing in the skills of character is a great place to start. Andy, do you agree with that? Elevator ride complete. The problem is that I violently agree with that. And Adam- No! Uh, yeah, no, don't worry, don't, my friend, don't worry. Adam, of all your books, I think this one is my favorite. Uh, it, it, it's just uh, uh, your trademark fantastic writing and storytelling married to really good research about a topic that's incredibly important. How do we get better at the stuff that we want to do? I love the book. Uh, congratulations. So Hannah, my my answer is I do agree. There's one thing that I, you know, if, if I were going to advise Adam on this book, I, I wish he would have added that I think is incredibly important, which is to get good at difficult things. Uh, surround yourself with people who are good at those things. And I say that for one specific reason. And Adam does talk about this a bunch in the book, but I think uh, in general, we tend to underemphasize it. And one of our human superpowers is learning. And in general, we learn from the people around us. And in general, I think a ton of that learning is actually subconscious and unconscious. We definitely consciously look at what successful and prestigious people are doing and we try to mimic them. But it goes a lot deeper than that. Our br we're always scanning the environment and in particular looking at older people, successful people, and prestigious people, and just kind of absorbing what they do. To the point that, Hannah, like you probably know, if you fly around America, all airline pilots sound the same. They come from all over the country, and they all sound the same, and they all have a derivative of a West Virginian accent that belonged to Chuck Yeager, who had the most righteous of the right stuff among airline pilots for a long time. And he was worthy of emulation to the point that decades later, airline pilots are still emulating his accent. And so what you know, if I could add a chapter to Adam's great book, I would add a chapter about the, the huge value in just surrounding yourself with people who are good at what you're trying to do. And in particular, to Adam's point, emulating the kind of character traits that you think are important, you will, I, I believe you'll absorb them and start practicing them consciously and subconsciously super quickly if, you, if you're surrounded by um, emulation-worthy people. Okay, we already have something to fight oh, about. This is great. So, so first of all, um, Andy, The Geek Way is my favorite of your books. And I, I was going to say that before, and now I feel like I'm pandering, yeah. but... I, I arrived at that conclusion before you praised Hidden Potential, so I feel I feel okay with that. And also, I didn't say your other books were anything special, so it's you know it's not like this is you know an absolute yeah. form of <laughs> adoration. Just, I'm finally I'm just, over the bar for writing a decent book. Thanks, man. You're just you're, you're just getting better. That's all I'm saying. Most improved award. I surrounded anyway. myself with no. the best, much like yourself. Uh, no, 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 no. I um I loved I loved so much in this book, and um I also. I disagreed with some of it and in ways that made me think, which is one of my favorite qualities of yours, that even when, when I, I think your conclusions are wrong, you push me to, to become sharper about my own reasoning. Um, so let's, let's talk about one of the ways that you're doing that right now. I think, I think you're spot on that, that surrounding ourselves with people who are better than us is a key to learning. Uh, I think that's something that, that the best geeks do instinctively. I think we have to be careful when we do that, though, because we're often learning the wrong lessons from people who are better than us. Um, how many times have you watched people look at a, a founder like Steve Jobs and say, well, OK, I've got to be a little bit of a, a jerk in order to, to bring out the best in people? Like, well, how do you know that he succeeded because of those habits and not in spite of them? And I would ask the same question of, of the pilots who are following Chuck mm -hmm. Yeager. 
Like, is is the tone he used actually effective, yeah. or are we just emulating it because he happens to be really good at a different set of skills? Do you worry about that too? We absolutely over-emulate, and it can get you into trouble. Um, emulating Jaeger's accent is probably not a bad thing to do. Emulating Jobs screaming at his subordinates is a bad thing to do. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I think that's a really valuable caution. In general, though, I think we are good emulators. I think we are wired by evolution to be uniquely good at it. And so to personalize it a bit, one thing your book helped me understand is that I'm going about uh, my um, quest to learn to kiteboard better in the wrong way. It's kind of the difficult thing that I'm doing right now to convince myself that I'm not just another broken down middle-aged guy. And it's physically a difficult thing to do and it's kind of dangerous. So it, you know, it ticks all the boxes. And I realized as I was reading your book that every time I go to a crowded kiteboard beach, I learn a ton because I'm watching the people who are really good at it. And I'm, my brain is even below the level of consciousness is doing a ton of pattern matching to say, OK, that, that's how posture should work. That's how you control the kite. Every time I go to a crowded kite beach, I walk away better whether or not I get in the water. The problem is that because I'm reluctant to fail in public, like you're telling us, uh, to not to be, I usually go practice by myself. And I realized that's actually holding me back and I could make much faster progress if I did more of what you are recommending and become uncomfortable. And for me, that means getting out there in public because I'll have more chances to watch people who are really good and my brain will, will internalize that. Well, you know, I really wrote this book because I wanted to elevate your kiteboarding game. But I sense that. I What's what's also interesting here is that I think the the public practice idea, yeah, it's embarrassing. You're going to make more mistakes, but you're also then putting yourself in a position to be coached by people who are a little bit better than you. And I think, yeah, you could watch people who are really good and try out their techniques and figure out which ones work for you. But them observing you is a great way for them to identify some some opportunities to maybe evolve your technique. Yeah, this sucks because we agree way too much. Uh, it turns out there's some fascinating research that I came across when I was writing The Geek Way. There, There's a theory that I love, which says that as we become more prestigious, in other words, um, a popular high status because of our abilities. In other words, as we become really good, we also become more pro-social. We become more willing to coach other people, to be a teacher to them. And it turns out that prestigious people, as opposed to dominant people, prestigious people tend to be really cooperative, altruistic, pro-social, use whatever word you want. And I'm amazed amazed when I go to kiteboard beaches. There, there's a jerk community out there. There's kind of a young, macho jerk community. But in general, the, the best people on the beach are the ones who are really happy to point you where you should go, watch out for this, try this, and just be incredibly... Uh, giving and pro-social and willing to teach you what you want to learn. So yeah, right on. And and you know, of course, already that one of the, the ancillary benefits of, of being willing to share your knowledge is it actually improves your own skill. I, I'm just fascinated endlessly by, by the psychology of the tutor effect, um, which first came onto my radar when I, I read research that firstborns tended to outperform laterborns on intelligence tests. Uh, and you can't explain that biogenetically very easily. So there's something that happens in their experience to firstborns that not necessarily making them smarter, but it's enabling them to to know more or, you know, to think a little bit more coherently. And what is that? It turns out one of the factors is if you're a firstborn and you have younger siblings, you spend a lot of time teaching and tutoring them. And I think we've all heard that the best way to learn something is to teach it. What we don't think about carefully enough is the mechanisms that when you have to explain something, you understand it better and you also remember it better because you've had to retrieve it. 
Um, and that that act of continually teaching is, is one of the best ways to learn. So I've actually come to believe that instead of saying those who uh, who can't do teach, we should say that those who can't do yet can learn in part by teaching. Yeah, and it's also, I think, dead flat wrong that those who can't do teach. If you look across most human groups, the prestigious people are the teachers out there, and they do it both by example and more actively. Hey, Hannah, do you want to jump in here? Because Adam and I are so far violently agreeing, and this is this is not the party that I signed up we for. We can't have that. No, I was just going to ask, Hannah, if you can give us some things to fight about. <laughs> The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, what I wanted to ask you, Andy, actually, your book is called The Geek Way. Can you define what you mean by a geek? And is Adam a geek? Uh, thank you, because this might actually give us something to fight about. Because I think Adam is clearly halfway to being a geek, and I'm less clear about the other part, and I want to hear him defend himself. Uh, because for me, geek is a term of praise. That uh, word has broadened out from computer nerd, and now I think it means two things. It's the way I, I mean the, in the book, I mean the, the word um, in two senses. Number one, a, a geek is somebody who gets obsessed with a hard problem. They love a challenge. They love to dive in. They go as deep as they need to. They get a little bit obsessed. And by that definition, Adam is abs you're, you're a sequential geek, right? You tend to get obsessed with topic after topic and you will pursue them to the ends of the earth. And I think that's amazing. So uh, it, on that front, Adam is absolutely, in my view, a geek. The, the one that I'm a little bit less sure about, and I, I want to hear, Adam, what you have to say about this, is um, geeks tend to be mavericks. They tend to be, out, in my definition, they tend to be outsiders because the solutions that they come up with when they dive in deep on a problem tend to be pretty far outside the mainstream. They tend to be unconventional or far from the status quo. And in my eyes, a geek is somebody who doesn't care about that and will go to weird places if that's where their uh, inquiries take them. So a two-word definition for me of a geek is an obsessive maverick. Adam, how big a maverick are you? <laughs> well, not not as big as I would like, I guess, is the the easy answer. I think my my instinct is to to be a little bit conforming. Why? And to I, I think in part because... 
for a long time, I was I was worried about social disapproval, and I wanted to be liked and accepted and respected. And it's it's easier to I guess to to have people support you if you're you know going along with the status quo. But I think I've become increasingly um, nonconforming as I've learned to put truth above tribe, and as you know, my I guess my for me one of the core principles of being a social scientist is um, not only listening to ideas that make you think hard, but sharing ideas that make other people think hard, even if they're unpopular, as long as they're they're supported by evidence. What are your most maverick ideas so far? Oh, I mean, I, I got a lot of hate when uh, when I called for abandoning elections in favor of lotteries this fall. Oh, wow. That was that was fun. Gosh, OK, that qualifies. Uh, but but to your point, Andy, that's not something that's not my my first impulse. Uh, it's something I have to push myself to do to go that far against the grain. And then every once in a while, I overdo it and then have to say, look, this was a thought experiment. Yes, it's it's informed by some really interesting actual experiments. But no, I don't think we should elect presidents or prime ministers by lottery. I would do it for for Congress or oh. Parliament, uh, where it's a large group of people. And, you know, they seem to be in a lot of cases extremely dysfunctional. But that is another conversation. Andy, I want to come back to, to your definition here. Um, why why do you think the Maverick part is is definitional as opposed to just a frequent feature? Oh, because I get I get to define the word the way I want to. And the, the book in large part came about because um, Rafe Sagalin, who's uh, my literary agent and Eric Brynjolfsson's literary agent, who has just become a, like a, a trusted friend, a conciliere, a guy who I, I just inherently respect and trust a lot, looked at a couple paragraphs that Eric and I wrote in our last book together, Machine Platform Crowd, and he, and he said, there's something there. There's a there's a big idea lurking down there because Eric and I had written a couple of paragraphs about this, what we called a geeky leadership style that we'd observed over and over again. And Eric said, uh, um, Rafe said, this is something that needs to be explored. It's a, re- it's a real idea and it's territory that you can claim as your own in the way that, that Adam has grabbed givers and takers, uh, that uh, Angela Duckworth has grabbed grit as an idea. What Rafe said is there's this concept, there's this idea called, or this thing called geek that, that Andy, you should go write a book about and you should claim as your own territory. So Adam, I'm not saying my definition is the one that's found in Webster's. The, 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 the people in the companies that I got super interested in had these two characteristics. And to my eyes, they are reinventing this kind of important technology that we call the company. And the ones that they're coming up with are pretty far away from the dominant ones that we built up over the industrial era. And no coincidence, they're mopping the floor with the incumbents of the industrial era. So that's that's where my definition comes from. This is this is so interesting. So this is this is what I love most about this book. So my previous favorite book of yours was The Second Machine Age because you put a concept on the map for me that I hadn't thought about, which was exponential technology. Oh, okay. And you helped me understand why the now the wave of AI has actually been different from pretty much any other technological advance in human history. It turns out we love the second machine age. You did. I mean, you were, you were, I thought you were aggressive in your optimism there about how quickly this technology would advance. And that, that turned out to actually be an underestimate. But you were, you were I think, closer to having your, your finger on the pulse than, than really anybody looking at the trends that I was taking seriously. Um, but I think in this book, you've done the same thing. And maybe, maybe I wanted to frame the maverick a little bit differently. I wanted to, to think about it as independence of thought. So I was, you know, as I was reading your characterization of of these highly, highly influential geeks, I was wanting to draw a two by two and say, okay, the obsession part, if you leave out the, what you called a maverick or what I would consider to be independent thinking, 
then it's too easy for people to to just execute on existing technologies and practices and basically build, you know, a better mousetrap or, you know, like you go from Ask Jeeves to Alta Vista. <laughs> right? But what takes us to, <laughs> and, and I do wow. miss both of those, well, both of those technologies, yourself, by friend. the way. I mean, I, I, well, that's another conversation, but I, um, I think in order to get to Google, uh, you need to be willing to abandon the way it's always been done. And I think that that's what's at the heart of not just being a geek, but being an influential geek. Yeah, that sounds right to me. And I'm not sure how much difference there is between your independence of thought and my maverick. Maybe maybe we're saying the same thing in two different ways. But the remarkable thing to me, as, as I was researching and decided to write the book, was that the companies that these people had come up with were very different in a lot of ways, but yet I think they're fundamentally similar in really, really important ways. And I wanted to identify what those similarities were and hang a label on them and underscore that they are different from what we built up over the, the 20th century, over the industrial era. And I think a lot of the standard business school playbook that we've been putting out about how to run an organization and and make it continually successful as it ages and as it grows, I think a lot of that was actually bad advice, was dead flat wrong. So I, I want to stick with this um, this maverick, this very far from the status quo, very far from the mainstream element of what I think the geeks have come up with. I think the, I, I like I like the... Well, I like a couple of things. W one of the things that, that stands out for me is you do a better job explaining how to systematically not only disrupt an industry, but continue disrupting yourself to overuse a cliche that's already been cliched uh, than, than I've seen anybody else do. And I think it's, it is fascinating because a lot, of, a lot of the people that you're profiling do not know that this is their secret sauce. Um, they, they do it intuitively. And I think it's only... My, well, I'm, I actually, let me make this into a question for you. Um, I have this image of, of some of the people even profiled in this book reading it and saying, Andy's holding up a mirror, and now I see why my, my, my own habits and strategies have been successful, but I could not have articulated them before. Have you gotten any yeah. of that feedback? Yeah, I got a little bit of that, and it was super gratifying because... Adam, I do the same thing you do when I write books is that I, I, I call up people aspirationally and say, hey, we, you know, can, will you give me some time? Can we talk? And you and I have the great good fortune that we get a lot of yeses when we do that. So I got to sit down with my favorite alpha geeks and ask them about this stuff. And I could kind of sense that as we kept on going with the conversations, I could see their kind of their thinking cap go on. They're like, oh, yeah, that yeah, I guess that is. That is what's happening. That 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 is kind of an interesting way to look at it. Um, I'm going to talk next uh, next week. Uh, I'm going to talk uh, in uh, second week of December on stage at the Computer History Museum with Carl Bass, the former CEO of Autodesk, and just one of the eight, one of the you know the the serious long term veteran geeks of Silicon Valley. And he and I had these fascinating conversations where he kind of said, "Yeah, I guess that is what we're doing. I guess that's why it's different." So I got a bit of that, and and it helped a lot. Um, but in general. I, the the geeks are um, they're pretty set in their ways and they're, they're, it's a better mousetrap so they should be set in them maybe I can suggest some things that they can tweak around the edges or a couple things to be on the lookout for and, and that would make me really happy I think the other thing you can do maybe you're understating your contribution here because I think a lot of them um, actually unlearn some of their critical geek habits once they become really successful totally. this is this is the founder trap that we've both been watching for decades of you know, you, you you invent something new and then you become a prisoner of your own prototype and you're not willing to, you know, to to shatter some of the best practices that have become obsolete. I, well, let me let me push back on that, because I think that one of the things that 
you said that I agree with, unfortunately, is that these companies are better at disrupting themselves than the, the legacy incumbents that, that you and I are used to. They, they, Eric Schmidt had a great way to say it. He said, these, you have to understand, you know, Google's peers and the companies out in the valley, we were born in fire. We were born in an environment of great turbulence and change. And we kind of absorb that a little better than older companies have. And I think that's right. The trap that I think the geeks get into is the classic human trap of overconfidence. And we see this over and over where after they've had this amazing run, the people at the top start to think that their ideas are by definition good ideas and their next one's going to be a great market changing industry redefining idea. Their peers go along with it because this is a very senior, very prestigious person and they, they just get tripped up by overconfidence in the same way that the rest of humanity gets tripped up to over by overconfidence. So I want to turn this around into a question for you. Do you think we can train ourselves out of overconfidence? And by extension, these other cognitive biases that really dog us. I hope so. In, in some ways, I was I was hoping that after I wrote Think Again, like, mission accomplished. Everyone, everyone, everyone yeah, who exactly. reads it will well, no, no more longer that. fall victim to overconfidence. Uh, I I worry a lot about what psychologists call the bias blind spot, I, which I think is the mother of all biases. Uh, I've come to think of it as the the I'm not biased bias. And it does it does predict falling victim to almost any other cognitive trap you can imagine, because if you think that you're you're neutral and rational, then you're not capable of admitting that your you know, your processing might be distorted. And so I, I actually think we want to start there and have people acknowledge, hey, I have biases. I'm motivated to to see my ideas as successful. Um, I fall in love with them too easily. And I need to be challenged by by people who disagree with me. Um, you know, not not who are being contrarian for the sake of it, but actually share my some of my values and goals um, and are not convinced that I have the best way to go about reaching those values and goals. And I think it's it's hard to imagine any geek sustaining success without investing in building that kind of challenge network of of thoughtful critics and coaches who don't just cheerlead. For so hold you. on. If you think that people read your book, uh, read Think Again, read Pinker's Rationality and train themselves really hard to have better habits of mind. Do you think that's sufficient, or do you think they also need to do what you just said, which is surround themselves with what you call the challenge network? Well, you're leading the witness. Yes, I am. Clearly, it's the okay. latter. It's, it's, it's obviously the latter. I think you know, it's, it's one thing to raise people's levels of awareness and give them a, a vocabulary to describe something that they do often, uh, to get them to change <laughs> their habits on a regular basis. We all need accountability mechanisms. Do you, do you worry that you... That, the book you wrote is going to make the problem worse in the following way that I came across a lot of research that seemed pretty solid to me that says after, for example, we get ethics training, we are, we have the strong tendency to walk around thinking of ourselves as ethical people, because after all, we've been trained on it. And therefore the things that I do are going to be more ethical. It feels to me like we could get into the same trap with, uh, trying to de-bias ourselves and we can walk around thinking, well, I've, I've worked really hard on de-biasing myself. Therefore, I must be less prone to these things. Is that a fair thing to worry about? I, I think it is. I think it's a risk. I think it's one of the reasons that that for me, like busting the, the I'm not biased bias starts with instilling a deep sense of intellectual humility. Yeah, but, uh, that but every that's, time that's the same problem. After you do that, you're like, well, I'm, I am a deeply humble person and therefore I'm not going to make these problems. <laughs> no! Anymore. No, but that's that's the wrong attribution. I, yeah, to but make. it's a common you learn something new. Andy, please, you know this. Uh, any any moment of discovery should reinforce your awareness of how little you. I know, know it should. And I'm just I'm just don't think it very often does. Yeah, but I I think that's that's a that's a failure of learning. 
right? Because you've you've started then to overgeneralize. Isn't that isn't that like saying say, okay? That, just because I liking, learned this one thing. Okay, this is I. I'm not sure how much we disagree, but at least a little bit. So this is fun. If, to me, that's a little bit like saying that liking calorie-rich food is a failure of dieting. <laughs> okay, fair right? enough. No, we're, we're just uh, wired to like calorie-rich food, man. It's a really hard thing to overcome. These biases, they're, they're super deeply wired. You and I agree on that. I think that they're so hard to shake because they're there for a good reason. Evolution uh, these are not flaws in evolution. These are not bugs. These are features, and they're features to help us better fit in with the rest of this weird species uh, of of human beings. And trying to train ourselves out of those biases, um, man, I, I think I'm more skeptical than you are about our ability to do that I'll, I'll, in the same way that most of us can't stick to diets very well because we really like calorie-rich food. I think the only... Is this too strong a statement? The the antidote to the biases or the counter to them that I'm incredibly fond of is your challenge network, is surrounding ourselves with other human beings who are entitled and have the psychological safety to push back on us. Because my read of, of how human beings come to make good decisions is that there's this really interesting bounce back and forth between what goes on at the individual level and then airing that stuff to the group. And the group is a very, very, as you know, a really good stress tester of your ideas. Does that work? Yeah, it does. I think I'm, I am a little more optimistic than you are about the ability of a, a disciplined, motivated person to hold some of these biases in check. But I, th I think we're aligned on the fact that you're going to have a much better shot at doing that consistently um, over time if you're not just you know embedded in a challenge network, but you build a group or organization around you where the highest sign of respect is telling you what your blind spots are and challenging you to rethink things that you think you know. Amen. And that, and man, I think that is incredibly rare. And I think the the geeks, the the geek companies that I wrote about are at they're not the only ones doing it well, but they are at the lead of that for a bunch of reasons. I, I thought um, Reed Hastings' book that he co-wrote with Aaron Myers, No Rules, Rules, was fantastic for a lot of reasons. One of them was that Reed was really forthcoming about the things that he had screwed up over the course of his career. And he tells how even after he'd worked really hard to make Netflix a place where people would speak truth to power and productively disagree, they let him get away with the quickster idea, which is this horrible idea early in the company's history to separate into two companies. It tanked the stock price. It went down by 75%. It was just a ludicrously bad idea. And he didn't get any pushback on it. And he went back to his colleagues and said, why? And they're like, well, you're the founder of the company. You've been right about so many things. I thought it was nonsense, but I didn't like I, I was a little intimidated to come back on you. And Hastings kept instead of giving up, he kept working on mechanisms, even though he's not a fan of lots of formal mechanism and process at Netflix. He kept on working on mechanisms by which people would get more honest feedback about their ideas. And I, I just think that's amazing. And we and, and the geeks are working pretty hard on that. Uh I do too. And I, I mean, the, the, so the trap you're describing is escalation of commitment to a losing course of action where you make an initial decision, you get an early sign that it's not going as planned. And instead of rethinking it, you double down and invest more time, more money, more resources. Uh, and pretty soon, you know, the costs of failure are, are escalating. Um, and nobody tells you because it's your baby and they don't, they don't want to point it out if you're the top boss. I think your geeks have some really interesting systemic solutions to this. So I, sp I spent some time at Google X a while ago when I was doing a, a work-life podcast with them. And 
they they had people designing all kinds of wild ideas, some of which have seen the light of day, like balloon-powered internet and self-driving cars, and other others of which were just you know, beyond dysfunctional. Like there was a, a literal proposal to turn seawater into fuel. Well, the person who dreams up this project is invited, like everyone else at X, to identify kill signals, which are signals that might flash in the coming three to six months, telling you this project is not viable. And when you when you launch a new idea, they want you to experiment. They want you to iterate just like a good geek would. But then they also want you to have the judgment to know when it's time to pull the plug. And they have a, a whole system of rewards and recognition for people who will say, hey, my kill signals are flashing. This project is not going to work before somebody else has to point it out to them. And um, lo and behold, the, you know, the, the engineer who came up with that idea was the one to kill it before anybody else saw the kill signals flashing. And I think that's, that's to me a sign that we can do this to some extent ourselves, right? So we, we, built the, you know, we build the incentive system and then we predetermine up front what the conditions are that should lead us to change our mind. If we do that, it's a little bit easier to recognize our own biases. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, but what I like is that they, as I hear that story, which I agree with, that's an example of a company working to have a norm of what I would call openness, which means openness to this idea is a bad idea and we've got to acknowledge it and do something else. And I'm going to be okay with that because it's not a career limiting move and it doesn't tank my future at the company. I think back about Bingo. the books that Jack Welch wrote, one of which was called winning, right? The, you know, the last thing you would do is, pre is set up the preconditions for your failure because you're not going to admit failure. The other one was straight from the gut, which is the opposite of being evidence-based about your decisions. And I just, I think how far the geeks have come from those very, very deeply held beliefs. And I don't think it's coincidental at all that that's why they're, they're mopping the floor with incumbents in so many industries. Uh, but this is, this is entirely too friendly and benign. What do you think I got wrong? Or where, where did you find yourself disagreeing? Oh, many things. Oh, good. Many, many things. But before I answer <laughs> so that, much. Hannah, I imagine you have some more questions for us. Yes, I do. I thought maybe we could change tack a little bit. Um, Adam, in your book, uh, Think Again, you talk about tribalism and you claim that you could take a bunch of Red Sox supporters and Yankee supporters. And I think I need to explain to our British audience that these are baseball supporters who absolutely notoriously hate each other and you might be able to bring them together um, as an example of, of how one could bring together you know polarized groups could you just expand on that I could do you want me to oh yeah I want you to <laughs> all right I mean this, look this is this is the American American equivalent of of asking Manchester United and Liverpool fans to to go out to drinks together and I tried a whole bunch of approaches with my colleague, Tim Kundro, that did not work. Uh, we tried to, to appeal to their common humanity. We tried to get them to say, hey, you're, you're fans of the same sport. Uh, none of that worked. What ultimately was effective in some of our experiments, and this didn't just hold with sports fans, it also worked with people on opposite sides later of um, gun debates and also abortion debates, was we asked them to imagine it, that they might root for a different team if they had been born in a different city. And all of a sudden you realize that, <laughs> that the team that you're attached to is an accident of birth and circumstances. And you could be the exact same person, but if your parents just happened to live in a different city, you would have an entirely different allegiance. 
And what that did is it cultivated a sense of, you know what, maybe I'm not that different from these people after all. Um, they have terrible taste, uh, but their core is is not hateful. Can we expand this into the political world? I mean, you talked about abortion and gun control. Could could this be, I mean, could your, your methods be expanded in some way to, to deal with this horrific polarization that we have in America and in Britain? I hope so. So our, our next set of experiments, which which didn't make the book because they happened after the <laughs> after Think Again went to press, um, we took people who were were staunchly pro and against abortion um, and for gun safety versus uh, gun rights, and we asked them to to evaluate an argument by the opposite side, uh, and then later we gave them a chance to um, to consider going on a date with somebody who held the op- opposite beliefs, and also uh, we gave them a chance to take. Um, painfully spicy hot sauce um, and and ship it to their hated person on the other side. And what we found was if you did that same exercise, um, just reflecting on, okay, what do you think you would believe if you had grown up um, in, you know, a rural farmland as opposed to, you know, an urban city or vice versa? Um, what do you think you would believe differently if you'd grown up in a religious community as opposed to a more secular one? Um, lo and behold, you sent less nasty hot sauce <laughs> to your your rival, and you also were more interested in going on a date with them. And so I think there's something here. I, I love how hot sauce and a date are the opposite ends of the spectrum of responses. <laughs> what what if you like spicy food? Well, okay, so we 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 actually. <laughs> I should say these these experiments. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people to do things that that show either support or aggression that are ethical. And there's a group of social psychologists who validated a hot sauce um, allocation paradigm. Yep, that's a thing. Like looking at the they, they had people sample different hot sauces and they found a range that's just painful. And we're really clear in describing it that no one is going to like this stuff. Okay. Oh, we also we also gave you the chance to. Um, to sabotage your counterparts' bonus by giving them almost impossible as opposed to easy math problems. And when you did the counterfactual thinking exercise of who would I be if I'd been raised differently by different people in, in, in a different place, um, then you're you're more likely to give them the doable math problems, even if they hold beliefs you think are objectionable. Okay, Adam, I have a question for you on, on this exact point. And this gets to, I think, a difference between uh, your your worldview and mine. Uh, Hannah, for for the uh, non-Americans listening in, the American baseball season runs from April through September. Adam, if you did the experiment that you just described with Red Sox and Yankees fans in April, and then they go back to their home cities, and then we, you know when the Yankees come to Boston, some of your experimental subjects go watch a game with all their Boston friends. Do you think they're going to cheer any less for the Red Sox or be any less biased as they sit there with their buddies uh, and their buddies are all talking about how much the Yankees suck. Do you think your your participants are going to go, guys, if we had been born in the Bronx, we would be wearing pinstripes right now? <laughs> because I want to be no, super I don't, clear. I, don't, I do not. I don't either. No, look, I, I'm what we're trying to do in these experiments is show that it's possible to get people to rethink their animosity. But I don't have any delusions that a you know a small one-shot inter- intervention is going to have a dramatic and lasting effect over many months. I do think that you could teach people to internalize this way of thinking. So let's let's think about a you know a more meaningful example of that. Uh, one of the things you see when when astronauts go to outer space, uh, there's there's a great analysis of interviews of over a hundred astronauts and also cosmonauts. When they come back, uh, they've 
they've basically become less parochial and less polarized. Uh, and a lot of them have almost the same description of what they've experienced, which is you leave planet Earth and you see the thin blue arc of the atmosphere that protects all life as we know it. And at that point, it's really hard to care that much about the borders between countries or the differences between groups. And I think that they're they're wrestling with a different kind of counterfactual, which is, uh, what if you know what if what if life didn't exist at all? That would be really terrible. And so we've got to protect and support all life. Um, you could you could think about another version of that counterfactual, which is, what if all these you know these borders had been drawn differently to begin with? Um, maybe we would essentialize different groups less. Uh, and we we would see them as more similar than we do right now. And I do think there are life experiences that people could go through that cause them to, you know, to internalize that way of thinking as opposed to just temporarily entertaining it and then abandoning it. Okay, so I got that. But is there any evidence that, for example, the Soviet cosmonauts who went back to this to this totalitarian state after they had orbited the Earth and realized the unity of all humanity and all life, did did they did they buck the system increasingly did they become vocal peace advocates did they did they start to advocate for disarmament and not blowing up the world i, I don't know i'm asking i don't either i think it's a great question Thank you. i was proud of it um so the the effect is called the overview effect and we know that it broadens worldviews does that translate into behavior right open question I, like i'm i'm interested in behavior change right i i i think this is where your unit your level of analysis and mine uh are, are are different. I'm interested in in lasting behavior change, and I think the group is the is the dominant way to go about that. The norms and the group. I, I actually, I think I am too. I think I'm. I guess our levers of influence might be a little different. I think sometimes I can do more good by reaching a lot of individuals than I can trying to change a group or a system. But I think you're right. Eventually, what we want to do is. I mean, actually, I, I think part of the reason that you and I both write books is we want to try to take people's problematic worldviews and replace them with you know, with more substantiated ones. And once you've you know you've labeled a phenomenon and built a framework around it and explained the science and the the experience and examples um, that bring it to life, then they can talk about it. They can emulate it. Yeah. To your earlier yeah. point about how we're great emulators yeah. on average. Um, and so I think that there's there's something to be said for saying let's you know let's get let's get a, an important set of ideas backed by data in the hands of a large group of people and let's see if they can build a system to implement that framework. Let me pivot this slightly. Uh, do do you think do you agree with with Jonathan Haidt that there's no ethics class that's going to make somebody behave ethically the instant they walk out of the classroom? I think it depends on how you phrase the question. How about the uh, way if, I just if you phrased phrase it, it? Like like you just did, and the way that John phrases it, eh, it's a tough sell. Uh, could we design an ethics class that increases the probability that people engage in moral decision making? Yes. Is it going to work for every person in every situation? Of course not. What? Okay, so do you think we could design an ethics class and assume away all the difficulties of or, the research? You know, whether you where if we did a, a randomized control trial and half the MBA students took the class and half didn't, and it was the best class that we could think of, and then charted their ethical behavior over their careers, do you think we'd observe a difference? I think it it depends on, I guess it depends on what we do in the class. But you're saying we can design it however yep. we want. Is that you right? Can, you can be in charge. Um, yeah, I think I think it's impossible. Well, blah, 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 blah. let me let me say this a little differently. I think in theory it's possible to to design an ethics class that 
net leads to less lying, cheating, or stealing among those who take it compared to a control group. Oh, again, over and the course of their careers? we can see those effects over months or years. Months or years? I do. Okay. I would take- I, I do think it's yeah, I would take the other side of that bet. Why? Uh, be- because I think we are creatures of our environment. I-, I think the environment is extraordinarily strong compared to the mindset. And that class will fade over the course of a career, over that length of time. And uh, as a result of the environments that we find ourselves in. I read this great book as I was researching The Geek Way, written by uh, Barbara Fay Toffler, who was the first professional ethicist brought into Arthur Anderson. And uh, Adam, you remember AA. This was a, an auditing firm that had a reputation for ethics and rectitude and all the good things you want in an auditor, but they turned into kind of a sleazy mess for some reasons that I go into in the book. They hired Toffler toward the end of their life as an independent company. And she does this really honest, very brave job in the book that she wrote called Final Accounting of talking about how she became unrecognizable to herself. And she said, just as willing to cut a colleague out of a deal and, uh, you know, and fleece the client essentially as anybody else around her. And I thought that was an incredibly little disappointing, little, little uh, depressing, but a very, very brave thing for a professional ethicist to admit. And I think that's much more the rule than the exception. I don't think she's a weak willed person at all. I think she's a person. Yeah, I, I, I think those those examples are they're striking. Denny Joya is another one. Ethics professor who was one of the original um, decision makers to go forward with the Ford Pinto, despite the, the fire issues, and even sold one to his own sister. Uh, he was not an ethics professor at the time, so I think that was, that was part of his motivation to become one. But I think we do see these cases. On the flip side of that, I think you know, there's a, is it um, Parks LeDuc, Mulligan, and Rutherford a couple years ago uh, designed an ethics training program for seniors. And what they did that I thought was different from standard ethics classes was they said, we're going to put this in different parts of the curriculum. And I thought this was ingenious because um, so much of unethical behavior is perpetrated through mechanisms of moral disengagement and ethical fading, where people don't realize they're in an ethical situation to begin with. And if you don't recognize a situation as, as having moral consequences, it's very hard to use any of your, you know, whether you've learned um, utilitarian reasoning or you know, pick, pick your favorite ethics framework. So they said, if we, if we do this across different courses, we're going to be able to teach you that ethical reasoning skills apply to your marketing decisions, that they apply to finance, that they have implications for operations, that you have to think about them in management and leadership. And I think if you do that, what their data suggests is that you increase the probability of ethical decision making over time. Um, they do show, though, that, um, that some people benefit more from ethics training than others. So more conscientious students uh, who are more disciplined and more organized and more likely to feel a sense of responsibility actually get more out of ethics training than less conscientious students. And I, I think that point about individual differences really matters. I think that there's a there's a person by situation interaction that's got to be accounted for here. And you can actually see it. I'll, I'll throw out one other maybe example of, of evidence that's changed my mind on this. Uh, I was a strong believer in, in the power of the situation uh, early in my, you know, in my study of psychology. Um, you know, we heard about the Milgram experiments and you know, that ordinary people would you know, deliver painful, potentially life-threatening electric shocks to somebody just because an experimenter told them to. Um, that was shocking, no pun intended. But then um, Thomas Blast did a reanalysis of the Milgram studies, and he found that there were a whole bunch of individual differences that predicted how far people would go. 
Uh, and if you were a conscientious person, if you were a religious person, if you had low obedience to authority, uh, you you actually you called it quit sooner and you objected to the experimenter's demand. And so I, I do think maybe it's it's harder to be strong willed in strong situations where there's a lot of pressure on you or where, you know, the norms are are clear and pointing in one direction. But I don't think we should discount the role of of people's principles in governing. This goes right back to character skills um, in governing how they, they choose to respond to ambiguous or, you know, somewhat challenging situations. I've got one final question for you where I think there might be some disagreement. What is your fundamental view of human nature? Do you think people are essentially good or bad? Or what are your reasons for that position? I absolutely do believe that individual differences matter. And we see tons of examples of that. I believe, though, that that we overweight them and we, we encourage people to think of themselves as individuals who can rise, who do rise above the situation too much as, uh, you know, inherently or 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 um, moral, ethical, intelligent, unbiased. We, we try we tell we do too much of telling people that they are all of these things and we under uh, emphasize that we are the most social creatures on the planet that peer effects and norms matter to us like crazy and that the constant danger is that we're going to find ourselves in a um, bad situation and we are not going to rise above it. And again, I, I think it's kind of like saying to people, you can follow whatever diet you want and not really acknowledging how much we like calorie rich foods. I think we can agree on that. Hannah, back to you. Well, I think we've run out of time now, but thank you so much to both of you. Adam Grant and Andy McAfee for a really fascinating conversation. Once again, Andy's new book is The Geek Way, The Radical Mindset That Drives Extraordinary Results, and Adam's is Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, Adam Grant will be on stage with Tim Harford live in London on the 18th of January in the new year. Find the link to tickets in the episode description. And if you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue too, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. Thank you.